episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, and friend, James Goad. And together, we're examining the unusual things that preachers say, the history behind what they say, and how it traces back through time through the latter rain healing revivals. James, we had some overwhelmingly good feedback on the first episode that we did. And um, I've had so many people contact us and tell us, <laughs> please look at this thing that my preacher said, or this other thing that my preacher said. It's so weird. Where did it come from? And um, I, I was actually just a little surprised at how good the first attempt at this went. Yeah, no, for a first episode, it was a, it was a good, uh, good start. <laughs> I think the biggest question that people have that we do need to answer is everybody suddenly said, who's James? Where did he come from? And um, a lot of people don't realize just how much we've worked together for the past few years. We've dug into some very, very strange things. And maybe it'd be good if you just took a minute and told the listeners, you know, who you are, where you came from. Right. Um, so I was born and raised uh, in the message. Um, and it was not necessarily similar to your sect because you were in the main sect, but I was in a subsect. But um, yeah, so I was born and raised, uh, you know, was around it my entire life. Um, you know, it's uh, things started getting uh, things definitely started changing um, once my parents left the message. Um, that was a very interesting time. And I was still very much in to the message. Um, yeah, you know, it was the only thing that I knew and I believed it is the truth. So even when they pulled away, I was pretty steadfast and I, I clung on to it. Um, and then it was probably after some time after that time, I started on my own journey of questioning, you know, seeing things stand out and you're just like, hmm, can't really understand that. And, um, and then you start digging in and learning more about what's said and what's not repeated later on in newer versions of uh, different ministries and how people choose to present the words of someone like William Branham. Um, it really starts to open your eyes on all of which are not being told and then what you are being told, the larger context that is completely left out and uh, completely changes everything that you've been told for your entire life. So that's, that's kind of my origin story of how I got here. Um, you know, and then, you know, we've, uh, through my research, I connected with you and, uh, started comparing things that I was finding and the, you know, things that you had already had found. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of just gone from there. You know, it's kind of funny because some of the feedback and I'll be open with you and <laughs> share, share it in front of the world, right? Some of the feedback was, <laughs> John, what are you doing? This guy's so young and <laughs> you're just a kid, right? But sometimes it takes somebody who's thinking in a much different way to help you think outside of the box. You meaning me <laughs> think outside of the box. <laughs> and it's, it's a fresh perspective, right? Some of the things that you found are just mind boggling, but <laughs> some of it's ingenious because 
I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older and I was in this thing for 37 years of my life. You know, I was in it in a version of the message that actually no longer exists. After we began publishing all of our research in 2012, it's so weird, man, because we, I remember, you know, I went from churches from Arizona to South Carolina, everywhere in between. And you would hear these ministers stand up and say that this is more accurate than today's newspaper. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they, they created this false notion that this movement was filled with nothing but truth. It was, you couldn't find anything more true than this. And when we began publishing the research and we realized that a majority of what was taught was completely purely fiction, they started changing it. (laughs) And I, I think right before I met you, I heard this minister say, well, it's okay that William Branham and all of these key figures are lying through their teeth because Abraham in the Bible was a liar. And I'm like, what in the, (laughs) how did it transition to that? Well, then, you know, we connected and your research is just unbelievable. I'm kind of excited to get into it, but it was a new perspective because it was a version of the message that I never even knew existed. It had transitioned. And um, so some of the things that you found have opened many doors. And I think the deeper we go, <laughs> it's going to blow some minds. Yeah, it's it's quite fascinating to see, you know, the, the, the sex that I was familiar with have evolved so rapidly since, you know, your research has come out and has just blown so many doors wide open that people were desperately trying to keep closed. Um so it's caused a lot of these groups to really hyper evolve in a very fast um, uh, way. And some of the things that they've tried to come up with to explain away some of the things that you found um, just help even create such a more strong um, dichotomy between what, what, what they're trying to say it is and what it actually is because they're, they're just creating so much more of a mess trying to fix it. It's like they're trying to bail water out of a, out of a ship that's full of holes, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of comical to watch in one sense, but in another, in another sense, it's, you know, there are people who are affected by it. So. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of the Looney Tunes cartoon. I don't know if you've seen it where Yosemite Sam is, on the ship and he's fighting Bugs Bunny and Bugs Bunny is just obliterating the ship and he's standing on what, you know, as the ship's being blown away, there's just this little tiny piece that he can even stand on and it goes down and he goes down with the ship. There are some ministers in this that are doing this. There's a large number, though, that I'm noticing are jumping ship just because they (laughs) see the opportunity to jump, not because they would have ever changed their mind or their ways, but they realize that this this is a problem. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And I think the bigger thing that has happened is, you know, through the history that's been uncovered, there are ministers who preach things that they don't even understand themselves. They have no idea where it comes from because it's not in the Bible. And they're preaching it because that's what they've been told, not because they've looked into the Bible to find it. And it's weird because if you hear two people preach the same thing, both of which 
know that it's not in the Bible, don't understand why they're preaching it, they go in different directions because they're <laughs> they're completely, you know, standing on the sinking ship as it's going down. And <clears throat> the thing that you found for today's episode, it's it kind of paints the picture of that, but it's even deeper because you take an extra biblical thing, doctrine, whatever it is, and take another extra biblical doctrine, things that did not even exist at the time the Bible was written, so there was no way it could be a biblical doctrine. And then you take another doctrine and build on top of that. You've got this weird thing that these ministers do not understand. And today's clip, <laughs> the the clip itself and the doctrine itself isn't that interesting, but the history behind it is absolutely fascinating. Right, and like you said, they'll try to... Uh take what the prophet messenger said and then they'll try to shoehorn it into the Bible somehow and they'll say, well, because it's not in the Bible, these things are new. They, they weren't there when the Bible was, was, was written and put into words. And so we need a prophet for this day to bring us the revelation of why these current day things are wrong. Because without the prophet messenger, we wouldn't know that X, Y, and Z is wrong. So, you know, that's, that's why it's required. And so that's how they try to weave in the extra biblical stuff and and um it yeah it just it really does get into some really comical territory sometimes when you can kind of step back and look at what's being said beyond the uh pressures of believing that this is right and you're trying to line up to it because when it's there that is actually very harmful in, in the moment because you're you're trying to force your mind to wrap around this this thing that can't possibly be true but you're being told it's true and you believe that it's from a true source so then you're trying to force yourself to to conform to it but when you take a step back and you look at it it yeah it does get kind of comical when you look at it from that perspective exactly and they say i've heard it so many times we need a new prophet <laughs> many of these people you know they came from this lateraine movement which had many many prophets plural and they built entire ministries and eventually cult followings that grew off of this thing where there's this guy claiming to be a prophet. And they are saying, we want the rules. Tell us what we can do. Tell us what we can't do. It reminds you of the children of Israel when, <laughs> when Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, which were basically a moral code that could apply to any given situation. Be nice to people. <laughs> Be nice to your wife. Don't cheat on her. Don't steal from people. The basics, right? And right. they said, no, no, go go tell us the rules. We want rules. And so that's how the Mosaic Law was established. And <laughs> the Apostle Paul called it as dung because it was worthless to live your life that way. And so these, these men are doing the same thing today. And, you know like the clip that you have, it's just so weird because you, you can't even take this thing and apply it to religion at all, but they try to. Christians bowling now in the message. How many knows, just be honest, how many knows what Brother Bram said about, about bowling and bowling alleys? He said it's one of the most foul places, more evil spirit, and that's where a lot of adultery goes on. We're going to go bowling. That's cool. Let's all do it. We're all young people. We're all together. We're all going to have fun bowling. Great. What did the prophet say? 
Well, why is he against falling? I don't know. He knows. He knows why. It's the hour. It's the time. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not what? Ruth, if you begin to go outside, you don't love me. No matter how much you can say you love me, by your action, I can tell whether you love me or not. If you love the world, this is why it's tough for the young people to get this. Because he's cutting the world off. And they feel like they're cutting the fun out of us. We need to go to, we used to go to the soccer ball. We used to go to the basketball. We need to go, I mean, uh, we used to go to the bowling alleys. We used to hang out like this. When you begin to enter sanctification, Boaz begin to cut them off. I don't want you to go there. 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 Praise God, we could be in the bowling alley or some crazy place today, but God, rich in mercy, saved our souls. So James, <laughs> this one is really funny to me because for, I want to say the first 25 years of my life, I did not know <laughs> that we were not supposed to bowl. I never <laughs> went. <laughs> I, I was not really... You know, I'm, I'm more into music, if you can't tell. I, I never really was into sports. So I never had really a desire to go bowling. But age, I want to say it was like 25 was the first time, 26, something like this. Had some friends who were also in a different branch of the cult, a different sect. And their sect had no idea they weren't supposed to bowl. <laughs> so they, <laughs> a group of them were going bowling. And I went with them, and I went bowling. And I remember coming back telling some friends that I, I actually played really well. I think I, I want to say I got 230, <laughs> which was really good for your first time bowling, right? Right. <clears throat> and um, I get back, and I tell some friends, oh, brother, you went bowling. <laughs> <laughs> That's familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, in your sect, were you also forbidden to go bowling? This is actually quite funny. So um, I was raised and, and um, you know, I know my family had interacted with a few different, uh, few different groups before they settled on the one that I was raised in ultimately. Um, so there, there were some carryover between different groups and stuff like that. So um, I'm not really sure quite where this originated, but yeah, I was kind of raised that way to believe that it was wrong to go bowling. Um, it was one of the things that was off limits and, and we shouldn't do. Um, it wasn't until I got older and started hanging out with um, some of the youth and was able to uh, take myself places that some of the, some of the youth group that I was with were like, Hey, let's go bowling today. Let's, let's, let's go bowling. And I was like, I'm like, wait, you guys want to go bowling? Like, what's going on? Like, I, 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 I was like, am I the only one who thinks this is wrong? And, 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 uh, and I ended up going and I had a, I had a fun time and I, I've bowled many times since then. Um, but it was also one of those things where, um, these people were, these, these youth that I was interacting with were in the same group or in the same church that I was in. And, um, but then you go to another state or another city and that church, claims to be preaching the exact same stuff and they're vehemently against bowling and i i'm not quite sure if if my church took a stance on it or not some you kind of notice this some 
churches in the message kind of be a little bit more liberal in some areas. And some of it kind of tends to be where the pastor sort of leans. Um, and so some of that gets kind of hard to decipher sometimes unless they're explicitly saying it over the pulpit. Um, but yeah, it, um, yeah, it was quite a very interesting, uh, uh, position for me to be put into the first time that I was asked to go. Uh, and yeah, I'm glad I did because it was a lot of fun and I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't see the, the, the big fuss that gets put on about it because it's, it's <laughs> really not that big a deal. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to picture a normal Christian who's never heard these weird things. <clears throat> I, I mean, take a kid. You, you put a kid out there and you give him a ball and you give him something to hit. And what's the first thing he's going to do, right? Yeah. He's going to try to hit with, with the ball because it's just fun. I mean, that's what kids do, especially boys. Right. And, you know, there's a, there, there's all these minefields you have to walk around when you're in groups like this because there's always, there's always so many rules and regulations and, and it seems like when you really look at it, it seems like they're trying to take the fun out of just about everything. And, you know, you could find some bad example of something somewhere where there was uh, some bad thing that happened. Like you can say, um, you know, well, somebody got drunk at a, at a bowling alley or some bad thing happened here. And you could pretty much make anything off limits if you tried hard enough. And, and it's almost, it almost feels like that's what's going on sometimes is people are just deliberately trying to make this stuff as off limits as possible. There's so many directions we could go with this, James. The, the most fascinating history to me of all, I think, is the history of the Gnostics and the ascetics. The people who literally thought that they could become better Christians by putting all of these extra rules and nonsense on their shoulders and save themselves, which is the opposite of what the New Testament says to do, right? And you know, you've got the ascetics. I don't know if you've seen the Da Vinci Code where the guy is mutilating his flesh by beating himself with a, I don't know, belt or whatever it is. There are these people that they think that they can do this and this makes them more holy because they're denying the flesh, and they've taken one phrase of the Bible out of context, and they're denying themselves. But they're avoiding entire other passages in the Bible. All things are pure, all things are holy, but not all things are leading us in a good way. In other words, you can do these things, but is it is it helping you or is it hurting you? In other words, you know, there's a, there's a scripture that don't let anybody tell you that you can't drink and you can't eat certain things because all things all things are righteous but don't get drunken you know the bible talks about you know all things in modesty all things in moderation and what it's essentially telling you is that if you become drunk you're going to do things that you wish you didn't do and some of those things may not be holy and may be sinful so Interestingly, that is more in line with the current with the recent history of the bowling doctrine. And so I thought we'd dig in today a little bit into just how bowling evolved and how it how it became a thing in the United States and why <laughs> in the United States you've got these Christians who say don't go bowling. And in other countries, they're like, What in the heck are you talking about, man? <laughs> right. Because in America, 
it's not just the message Colton at Splinter Groups, believe it or not, that teach against bowling. This was a widespread notion that if you bowled, you were sinning. And it has some very early roots in United States history that, for me, is it's just fascinating. So, yeah, funny enough you should mention that um, because... You know, I also was looking into some of the history of uh, of bowling and, you know, just trying to wrap my brain around where some of this stuff may have come from. And one of the things that I one of the things I landed on was that the uh, the Puritans actually had an interesting history with bowling, um, uh, you know, as they separated from the church and things like that. And they were trying to reform and they had all different views around what was going on. Um, so even like when they first came to the States, uh, there was uh it was pretty strict and, and that was one of the things that was, was kind of off limits. Um, it did eventually change over time and loosen in some, some areas. Um, but it was, it's, it is fascinating to see how these groups can, like, like the Puritans, for example, can, um, at one point in time, they have such a vicious reaction to something like bowling. And then over time, you know, at that and other things were, um, were not they, they weren't as um, ad, ad against it later on. Yeah, it's it's such a weird way in which the doctrines against bowling evolved, and as interesting how bowling itself evolved. Because again, if you give a, a kid a ball and you give him something to hit, he's gonna try to hit it, and so <laughs> they have a difficult time even determining the actual origin of the game, right? The earliest right. I think they found was in ancient Egypt, probably 5200 BC or so. They found that there were some Egyptian, I think there were even hieroglyphs of, <laughs> of a um, Egyptian figure holding a ball and there's some pins. It wasn't anything like today's game, but like the kid who has a ball, they're throwing a ball and they're hitting something because, hey, that's fun, right? <laughs> well, yeah. that that same thing developed in other countries and th countries that weren't even influenced by ancient Egypt. So it just kind of progressed in a cumulative way. So varying countries had varying ways in which you could hit the thing with the ball. And like the the pins that we have now, the, the type of game that we have now and the pins in the shape of a triangle did not evolve that way in other countries historically. They might have pins in a line or they might have you know, different sets of things to hit with the ball, but it progressed in Germany and England and you know, in the ancient world, they, they have found it in ancient Egypt, but no doubt there were other countries that had a kid and had something that <laughs> the kid could hit with a rock or a ball, right? So it evolved you know, almost universally as this thing, this game where you could hit something with a ball. And what's interesting is even though these groups in the, I think it was probably the late 1800s, early 1900s, American Christianity started deeming this thing to be evil for a reason which we'll get into. But some of, you know, the game also came into the United States from Germany, from London, from England. America was this melting pot of all of these different nations. So they were influenced by multiple games of bowling, multiple kids who threw the thing at, threw the ball at the thing to hit, right? 
Well, in Germany, the the monks in Germany use this as a almost like a celebration of casting out demons. It was it was like a religious ritual where they could roll a, <laughs> a rock into a club. I think they called it a kegel or something like this. And it represented the heathenistic ways. And so you're literally taking an object and you're throwing it, something that you can symbolically do as a ritual to show that you are conquering your sins. So when the game came into America from Germany, it it actually had a very good (laughs) religious connotation. When it came from England, however, the England, you know, I think it was a popular thing to do in the pubs in England. And so the English influence had the games was something that you do when you drank. And we'll get into that history a bit more, but it was the association of the game with the drinking that actually made it evolve into something that was spiritually unsound. Right. And the the thing that is so funny about that is, is that you have two, you have two, ways of partaking in this this thing you know whether some people call it bowling or not it's the root of it's kind of similar um and and so you have these people today wanting to say that it's just evil there 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 is no way about it you know if if you're caught bowling then you know god help you because you know we can't help you (laughs) um you know and so but you look at this and it's like it's it's not it's not as so simple as to just say that it's evil outright, you know, and just because you had a messenger that you believe to be to be true, say that it's evil, that doesn't just make it evil. Um, and it's, it's yeah, it's it is crazy when you start digging through the history, start putting more things together, just like just like this entire process of coming out of these groups, the more you the more you put together, the more history you combine, it helps create a, a more accurate picture of how things really are. And it really helps demystify some of these things and, and keep it from being so, um, yeah, so ghoulish sometimes in the way it's presented. Yeah, so I guess, you know, for me, the the fascinating history of bowling that I'm going to choose for this episode, I think, has to do with the temperance movement and with smoking. Because believe it or not, in America, this notion that bowling is sinful came from two things. The, the game itself was played in the pubs and the casinos. You can find old newspaper articles advertising, come here and relax and drink at a, at a relaxation casino at, you know, where there are hot springs, etc. And they have this game of bowling, which is not a strenuous game. So <clears throat> the, the idea of bowling, as it was associated with alcohol, became very problematic for the early Christianity in America when the temperance movement gained steam in the United States. That history in itself is really fascinating because it isn't that they were against drinking, because that, to be against drinking, would be extra-biblical. One of the biggest miracles in the Bible, Jesus turns water into wine to drink, right? And Right. There have been all of these studies. I won't pull them up for this show, but you can go look if you want. Just type in drinking in the Bible or alcohol in the Bible. You'll find that there are there are many situations where the the distilled alcohol 
was not in existence in the ancient world. It was something that progressed much later, but fermented drinks, such as, <laughs> such as fermented grapes producing wine, the ancient world realized that you could ferment various things and create drinks from them. And the water itself was, some, they realized that drinking impure water could make one sick. The Bible, you know, Timothy, I think it's in Timothy, Paul says, drink a little wine for your stomach. It'll kill the bacteria, etc., in your stomach. <clears throat> so the ancient world was not against drinking at all. But you'll find also passages in the Bible, don't give in to drunkenness. And you'll find examples of men who did in the Bible, who they, their lives went a direction that they probably wouldn't have taken had they not been a drunkard. So in early American Christianity, the temperance movement sprung from the notion that there were a lot of people getting drunk. The problem is it didn't really catch on at first because there were a lot of men who really wanted to get drunk. And so you had this wide range of people, Christian and non-Christian, who were attending, you know, they're going to bars, they're going to casinos, they're drinking. It's kind of a <laughs> the wild, wild west of drinking. And whenever the Industrial Revolution hit America, and you started having all of these factories, and these were very dangerous places to work. Some of them in America had children, small children, that in today's world you'd think, there's no way I would let my kid go work in a factory. But many families had to, to survive. And so when you had a drunkard in a factory where people could die, this became a problem. And so it actually started evolving into this temperance movement might have something on let's keep the drunkards out away from our children, especially in the factories. So it started catching on, you know, in the, I think it was the late 1800s or so. And what's interesting is in the same way that we're talking about this bowling thing that came from an extra biblical notion, people who recognized that drunkenness was a sin and joined into the temperance movement, became to, over time, evolve this into alcohol itself is sinful, and wine is sinful, which created this conundrum because Jesus turned the water into wine to drink. But over time, this literally evolved into this notion that if you drink anything, you are violating the the, the covenant that God made with <laughs> the, the New Testament Christian as don't get drunken because you drank just a little bit. And then in the society, I don't know if you were this way. I know that my family was. They, they had this notion that even if you drank just a little bit, you're going to get drunk. And I'll never forget the first time I saw somebody just have a shot of something as at a business meeting. I thought they were going to fall on the floor drunk, man. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's common thing that you run into when you are exposed to these, uh, extra biblical teachings that, yeah, you, something is so simple as someone just taking a drink socially and you think, oh, the worst thing is going to happen. He's going to start beating his wife and he's going to, he's going to lose his salvation and he's going to be running around and all these things. And it's like, no, he just had a drink socially. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so what's funny, James, is that as this evolved, and people became 
I, I hate to use the word militant, but they, they were very strongly against drinking alcohol of any kind, even wine. And it was to the extent that they formed this militant stance against the production of, the drinking of, anything that was even associated to alcoholism. So whenever they saw these casinos, they saw these pubs or whatever, and in the pub, they had a game of bowling, which, oh, by the way, every kid's going to do if they get a ball and get a few sticks. Well, they started linking those two together in their mind. Not only is it wrong to get drunkenness, they build on top of that to, it is also wrong to even sip, (laughs) even a little sip of alcohol, to anything that's in a building that has alcohol, anything in that building is also immoral. And that's how this became evolved into bowling as a sin. Right. And when you talk about the more militant side of the temperance movement, uh, one of the characters that sorts of stand, sort of stands out is uh, Carrie Nation, or more affectionately referred to as the Hatchet Granny by some. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, she was a, she was a radical member of the temperance movement. Um, you know, she often described herself as a bulldog running along the feet of Jesus, um, barking at what he doesn't like. Um, and I'm sure many of us can picture somebody who fits this description uh, in some of our experiences <laughs> in some of these groups. So it's it's not that far fetched. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, she, she would uh, I mean, she took a very hard line stance against against this. And, you know, she would even uh, go go so far as to go into the bars with a hatchet and try to destroy the, the, the liquor, the alcohol, and, 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 you know, even if people got in the way, I mean, some people even got hurt in some of these situations. So it's just like, you know, it, things got rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. And it's so weird, man, because in the Pentecostal world that we came from, and I'm not saying, I'm not painting this blanket statement that says all Pentecostals are this way or are bad, but... There's this weird notion that emerges that if you're against something and somebody stands not even just violently, but militantly against it to the extent that people are getting hurt, they'll actually favor the person who's against it. So this (laughs) this hatchet granny, she would go into these bars and just totally demolish the saloon, the bar, the casino. She she went in at first and just kind of. I don't know what she used, but she would just bust these gallons of whiskey or whatever alcohol they produce, beer and whatnot. And um, I think it was her husband that said, well, you might as well go in there with a hatchet if you're going to do that. And she said, oh, that's the (laughs) smartest thing you've ever said. So she got a hatchet (laughs) (laughs) and she started going on. Well, once you have a weapon in your hand and you're radicalized, this was a radicalized person. She was radicalized with the doctrine of prohibition of uh, temperance. She went in with a hatchet, started destroying the alcohol, but she didn't stop there, buddy. <laughs> she, <laughs> she started tearing up entire buildings. And then you can think as, as the owner of the establishment sees this woman come in, this wild woman swinging her, <laughs> I just hit my microphone, swinging her hatchet like crazy. Well, they're going to try to stop her, right? And and eventually right. they're going to try to stop her with weapons. Well, she was, from all accounts that I've read, she was the wiriest, 
ball of fire that you you couldn't catch her. She she would wriggle out of whatever you know, and she she would injure people. And when you compare that in today's world, you've got the Islamic jihadists, right? These people who are radicalized with Islam. And they're doing the same exact thing for Islam that this woman is doing for what she calls Christianity. And we would denounce the jihadists, but there are many Pentecostals even today that would say she was doing God's work, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. it's like I'm so offended by your sin. It's, it's better that I injure you in my quest to free you of that sin than to just let you go about your own merry way because it's, it's you and your life. You know, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're responsible, but no, I've got to take it upon myself to cleanse you of this thing, you know, cause you can't stop yourself from partaking in these drinks. So I've got to stop it myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I first came across her name whenever I was writing my book on John Alexander Dowie and the Dowie cult, in many ways, <laughs> was like this bowling do- Actually, they even had this bowling doctrine. The, the Dowie sect was teaching people, it was a cult, you know, just like, just like the message. They're teaching people that there are all of these things that you must not do that, quite frankly, aren't in the Bible, that you, you must not do if you want to be saved and go into heaven. And who's going to create all of these rules for you? Well, John Alexander Dowie, the cult leader, is going to create all of these rules. And he even took things that, like, I'm certain in your sect you were allowed to eat pork. And I know in my sect we were. (laughs) Oddly, we weren't supposed to eat eggs, but everybody did. (laughs) (laughs) Just, Just conveniently left out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you weren't supposed to eat eggs, and you weren't supposed to live in a valley, and... Ironically, the the main sect, the core church in the Branham Tabernacle, <laughs> was in the Ohio River Valley. But you know, that's that's, <laughs> that's another just details, John. <laughs> <laughs> that's another story for another day. Well, in the Dowie cult, they they like to take these these lists of rules from the Old Testament, even though in the New Testament it was fully abolished. That we have a better way, according to the Book of Hebrews. But they would take these statements you about, you know, the vile creatures. You're not supposed to eat pork. So the entire city of Zion not only was not allowed to eat pork, you could not transport pork through Zion, which created a big problem for the railroad companies because for them to stop in Zion, well, many of these railroad cars were, <laughs> they had pork. They were, tra- they were transporting pork to other cities. And in Zion, smoking tobacco was just, it was completely outlawed. You could not smoke tobacco anywhere. And interestingly, this bowling, this idea against bowling, it wasn't just the alcohol. It was because in the casinos, in the bars that had bowling, they also smoked. And the Dowieites taught that smoking was a sin. And... (laughs) <laughs> it's a history I won't get into in this episode, but if you study the history of chewing tobacco and smoking, well, they they weren't even doing that in the Bible back then. They had not, not yet figured out how to do this, and you know this is not something that just grew in Egypt and <laughs> in ancient Israel. So it was it was this rule that 
couldn't have existed in the Bible days, right? <clears throat> well, there was this scene that I discovered while writing this book. Dowie and his militant force of Zion went into New York City, and they tried to take over the whole city and convert them in one sweep. <laughs> very much very much like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they went and knocked on door to door with the goal of converting everyone. He was in, in these big buildings, and he was preaching against all of the sin in New York City. Well, Carrie Nation shows up and stands up and just starts blasting this man. You, you are an idiot. I, I can't remember her exact words, but she, she just mocked him and, and made him look like the fool that, quite frankly, he was. Well, they tried to catch her, and they couldn't. <laughs> and this this turned into this big thing because here's Carrie Nation, who is literally the face of the temperance movement back then, and she goes in fighting Dowie, who's also preaching temperance and anti anti uh, tobacco and these two just clash head to head and they couldn't catch her <laughs> it would describe these men coming up trying to grab her and before they could get their arms around her she'd wiggle out and go stand somewhere else and yell at the man <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 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 quite comical to uh to to see um uh, these various people interacting you know because yeah they're, they're they're like uh it's like almost like they're fighting over their turf you know it's like, yeah, you're against temperance, and I'm against temperance, but this is my turf. You can't do this on my turf. <laughs> so what's really ironic in all of this, James, is you've got the hatchet granny, who <laughs> is one of the most <laughs> fascinating stories in American history. But right. she is she is militant, and not just militant, but she, <laughs> she's very violently opposed to drinking alcohol of any kind. And she's a Protestant. She's in American Protestantized Christianity. I should say that backwards. Americanized Protestant Christianity. <laughs> and the whole Protestant movement that she is a part of evolved because of Martin Luther's stance against Catholicism. He, he started the Protestant Reformation, and because of him, we have Protestant Christianity. Because of him, we have Pentecostalism, Baptists, all of these groups emerge who are non-Catholic because of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who came from German Christianity, not Americanized Christianity, they drink beer in Germany like it's <laughs> like it's water, man. They, <laughs> it, this man would would have laughed at you if you told him that he can't drink. He one of my favorite quotes comes from Martin Luther. He said, "Whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep." Whoever sleeps long, he does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. <laughs> that's that's Martin Luther. And if you were in the message like I was, this is one of the quote-unquote church-age messengers. So right. this, this messenger gave us our instruction, we need to drink beer. And <clears throat> he would have laughed at you. He would have laughed at this bowling idea because... Show me in the Bible where it says, do not bowl. And what's interesting is the Dowie sect continued. Dowie's militant version of Christianity is literally what created the healing revivals that, quite frankly, created the message. You had numerous people who were in Dowie's cult of personality who became key figures in the message. F.F. F. Bosworth, 
who mentored Branham in doctrine and in how to hold a healing revival. F.F. Bosworth was one of Dowie's right-hand men. Gordon Lindsay, who was Branham's camp- one of Branham's early campaign managers, probably the longest running and the most famous of his campaign managers, was born in the, in the Zion City, in the Zion cult. And so many people that impacted, influenced Branham came out of this sect of Christianity. They were against bowling, which is why it continued in through the message and through the latter rain movement splintered into all of these various sects. That's why people who've never heard of the message will have heard you don't bowl because it was a very popular notion in Zion City. And it wasn't until 19, I think it's 1941, that they finally voted to overturn this idea that you cannot bowl in Zion City. Yeah, and it's it's so funny because just like so many instances throughout history where you find where bowling fell out of favor for whatever reason, whether it was religious or political, um, you know, it always comes back into favor because, you know, you just can't uh, you just can't keep the fun away from the people, I guess. <laughs> yeah. What we're doing, I think it has a great opportunity to be interactive. And I thought we would open the door. If you have weird things that your minister has said or did or just questions in general, I thought it would be good if we opened the door to answer them. So if you have questions, you can send them in at william-branham.org slash contact. And we'll get the question. We'll, I can't say that we'll answer every one of them or even that every show will have them, but we'll try as we can to answer the questions. And where did this strange doctrine come from, right? (laughs) One of the questions that came in, um, actually came in just this week, is a person was, we've used the word cult a few times, and a person was curious about that, what, what our mentality was. What are we thinking when we talk about a cult? And uh, the specific question was, if Branham was a leader of a cult, would you say that all of these other men connected to Dowie were also leading cults? And is the Pentecostal faith itself also a cult? And <clears throat> I have sent the answer already, but for the purpose of this episode, I thought we would just expand on that just a little bit. Because I'm assuming that by the word cult, this person is referring to a destructive cult. Because not every cult is something that you should even be ashamed of, right? I, I think we can safely say that the Swifties, the cult fan club of Taylor Swift, is not a destructive <laughs> cult. Although, I'm going to be really honest, it's not music that I particularly like. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it is one of those things that when when I was coming out and I was I was realizing that what I was in was a cult. Um, it is something that I I did look at because it, it does make you, you do ask that question: is is this a cult? Is all are all these things cults? Um, and you're right. I think the the thing that to focus on is the destructive side of that potential question: is it destructive? Because, like you said, you, even in in history like when you look at the word cult and and uh, like like church there have been um there have been linkages between you know it, cult and church so in in some ways before things got so destructive associations with it there there wasn't so um such a bad thing 
but now today we think of cults as, as destructive. Like when you hear the term cult, you think of Heaven's Gate, you think of Branhamism, you think of all these other things, um, Jim Jones. Um, so yeah, it, it's, I, I think that if, if it's destructive, I think that is the thing that is most important in that question. If it's destructive, then I think it's something to be worried about and definitely something to get away from. Yeah. And by destructive, I think we should probably clarify just a little bit because <clears throat> when people get defensive, when they say we're not a cult, our, our little cult group is not a cult, they're, they're linking that statement to the result of the destructive cult. In other words, they're saying we're not a cult because we don't have a Jonestown. We don't have people mm. who drink cyanide lace Kool-Aid or... We don't have a cult because there's recently this cult in Kenya that they starve themselves to death. We're not that way. We're not starving ourselves. So they think we're not a cult because we don't have the end result of the cult's implosion or the sect that imploded. Ironically, both of those that I mentioned were also radicalized by Branham's theology. And I think you have to, you really have to, open the hood and look look at what's under the hood in this the engine of this car so to speak because the destructive qualities of a cult Dr. Stephen Hassan defines them as the bite model BITE behavior control information control thought control and emotional control you cannot say with a blanket statement that every pentecostal church or even every branham church displays the qualities of a destructive cult. Are they linked to a destructive cult? Maybe. You know, some of the ones that are in the Branhamite sects obviously emerge from Branham. Branham's core main cult was a destructive cult and is a destructive cult. You have to examine each group individually because are they controlling and manipulating your behavior? In other words, are they telling you that you cannot go bowling because they have special knowledge that even though it's not in the Bible, we can control that behavior? Are they controlling information from you? Are they, are they hiding information from you? Are they keeping you from, <laughs> keep you from learning that there are all of these destructive qualities and Jim Jones is a part of this cult. Are they hiding this from you? Are they keeping the information from you? The thought control is even the thought of going bowling evil. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that I heard. Even the thought of drinking alcohol, just to think about it, is evil. Well, if, they're if they are manipulating your thoughts, this is a quality of a destructive cult. And... I think the biggest one for me, James, when they start toying with your emotions, that is one of the most powerful tools that a cult has in their tool belt. They'll make you weep. They'll make you cry. They'll make you have altar calls. And I'm not saying that an altar call is bad, but when they use that altar call as a means, as a vehicle for all of the other destructive qualities, they're manipulating you through your emotions that's one of the true signs of a cult. Um, interestingly, Dr. Walter Martin, he's famous for the kingdom of the cults. He actually labeled the United Pentecostal Church International as a whole. He said that the whole thing was a cult. And the reason why he 
chose the destructive label, he was, he was calling it a destructive cult, is because they were severing themselves from the rest of the body of Christ. And I remember watching the video. I was a little shocked whenever I saw it. The, the leaders of the Pentecostal faith of, this, of the UPCI, they were asked the question, if a person who believes the Trinity wants to fellowship with you and, you know, believes God, believe, you know, maybe if you're, you're right and oneness is right and they believe Trinitarian is right, can you still call him your brother and can they still go into heaven? They were willing to, at least in, in this one, you know, meeting where they were recording and filming the questions, the leaders of the UPCI said, no, we must sever ourselves from them because they're not part of us. And in doing so, they become isolationists. They're severing themselves from the rest of the body of Christ. Dr. Walter Martin labeled the whole thing as a cult. I personally can't go that far because (laughs) I've seen the way this thing grows and splinters and grows and splinters. And you've got all of these different branches that were Pentecostalism, have the roots in Pentecostalism, Almost every one of them can be traced all the way back to Dowie and some other very notorious <laughs> God's generals that <laughs> have, have huge problems. But I can't say that they're all destructive cults. I might can say that they're like the Swifties, that, <laughs> that they're in a, a cult of some kind. But unless they show the destructive attributes of a cult, I hate to call them destructive without even knowing who they are. Yeah, it, it is such a, a, a broad label just to throw around um, too loosely, um, you know, because it, it, you're right. It's it's one of those things that because um, even when you're in it, it's just it's so hard to identify. But, you know, one thing that I, I even thinking back on one thing that, you know, in the you know, if, if I was to see in media um, when I was consuming media like movies or something like that, if I, you'd see some sort of radicalized uh, religious um, representation um, I would always feel, I always had this weird feeling of feeling attacked by it, you know, because it was almost, um, it was almost like I had, de- I, I had a defense mechanism kicking up against that. And, uh, now I look back and, and I think that's, you know, you know, with, you know, uh, cognitive dissonance and things like that, probably trying my, my, my brain is recognizing that there's something wrong here, but it's trying to protect me from this fictitious representation of a radicalized religious movement. Um, and so, yeah, it's. There, there are all sorts of things that personally um, can tip you off and, 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 and are clues that something might not be right here. Um, and, and if it's a family member or someone you're, you're close to and examining from the outside, like you said, you know, being encouraged to pull away and disassociate, those things are definite signs that something is not right and warrants further investigation because um, a healthy group should not be encouraging people to disassociate from normal family members that you know are, are not if there's nothing if everything's on the up and up and there's nothing wrong there should be no reason why you shouldn't be able to have um, interactions with your family that's not in the same group that you're in absolutely well james this has been fun i um <laughs> i never knew that we could explore bowling so deeply as we did today <laughs> <laughs> right there's there's so many things. I've, I didn't even get through half of my notes. Whenever you get into the temperance movement and prohibition and all of the ties to 
these different movements and how they influenced American Christianity and more to the point, how American Christianity evolved in ways that other countries Christianity did not evolve unless America influenced them. It's just so fascinating. And to take a step back from all of it and just realize that many of these things that we were taught are extra biblical. They're not in the Bible. There's just so much here. And I think, um, you know, for me, just to sum this up, I'd say one of my favorite passages from the Bible and The Apostle Paul actually mentions this a couple of places. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. Or, you know, paraphrasing, not all things help you. In other words, you you really have freedom in Christ. You can do these things, but say you get addicted to bowling and you ignore your family and you'd rather spend all of your time at the bowling alley. Well, I I would go so far to say that's, not right. You shouldn't do that. But if you're going for fun, then the apostle Paul gives you a blanket statement. All things are lawful unto me, all things. He doesn't exclude for bowling. He doesn't exclude for these, these other extra biblical rules. And to, you know, to sum it up for me, just use wise judgment. I mean, think for yourselves, think, is this a biblical doctrine? Is this something that the Bible says I shouldn't do, or is this something that some man has told me and he has no idea why I shouldn't do it? Right. And, you know, in, in the, the sad thing is sometimes some of these uh, uh, ministers will use the most egregious examples of somebody falling off, somebody getting addicted to just blanket say the entire thing is wrong. And, you know, and that's such a, that's so sad and it's such a shame because there's so many things out there that we, that we can enjoy and partake in that are innocent fun and, you know, it's, it's just a shame that some of these things are, are being um, kept from people out of fear of sinning and losing their salvation and things like that. Yeah. Well, if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org. And for an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message. Available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible.